From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Groundsman Conversations. Joining me, as always, two men who somehow have not been fired from their roles as groundsmen, given the lack of effort they put into that job, Roger Mitchell and Giles Morgan. Gilo, how are you, my friend? Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I'm recovering from various sporting injuries incurred in Switzerland a couple of months ago, a snapped hamstring, a fractured elbow, but I feel spring has sprung, and um, I'm looking forward to this show very, very much. Good. Hey, boy. And Rog, come in, mate. How are you? I'm, I'm very good. Lake? Life, life of the lake's good. It's just beautiful here. Um, but, you know, um, I'm feeling for you a little bit, Grant. You know, uh, they're, pre- they're pricing you working class lads out of your passion. And it's meant to be all about the sport. What's the, what does it cost to get into Fulham now? Uh, listen, I've got to be honest, it took you longer than I thought it would to bring that up. I figured you would interrupt my intro to actually get this point in. Couldn't wait. Your knifey, you knifey <laughs> jock. Um, yeah, look, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, that story has, has dominated my Twitter feed this last week. The prices that they're charging for this new Riverside stand are, I think egregious is is not over the top, Rog. Uh, I mean, they've whacked prices up uh, to an extraordinary degree. The Fulham Supporters Trust are up in arms. God bless them. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out actually, Rog, because there's so much evidence of clubs leaving prices the same. Um, and this, uh, this, this is a perfect example of the quandary that faces people, right? When you can put the prices up, because people will pay those prices, um, should you, you know, that's the big question. And, and it's going to be really interesting to see how this, to see how this plays out because, uh, the, 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 the pushback from the fans has been, uh, very loud and and very continuous, and you know Shad Khan has the pricing power with that stand. So what he does from here is going to be very interesting. The one thing I would say though, Rog, is um, is my thanks to you for, for no, I'm not having that. Putting, I'm not having the that. There was, curse. We, there the was two curse, defeats. There was two defeats after my Fulham call. Curse on <laughs> that they would not win another game this season. And we have stumbled into what can only be considered a rich vein of form since then. So thank you. <laughs> Not since then. Your... There's two defeats after that. I just want to be precise on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, well, let's, all right, let's be precise. The language was they won't win another game this season. Yeah, no, no it was a wrong call. I've got to admit. I've got to admit. In the grand <laughs> scheme of decent calls like Wrexham, you got to have one or two for small teams that you get wrong. And I just that's, don't that's follow. Fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, listen, we can't, we, can't, we can't not talk about Wrexham this week because... Because the story has been just overwhelming everywhere, and, and what a fantastic story it's been. You know, um, I uh, I've been thinking about this, Rod, since we saw those scenes the other day, and there was a moment in those celebrations that that hit me uh, like a freight train, realizing what this actually is. And it, funny enough, this morning I saw someone write about exactly the same thing, and that was when the the team, the Wrexham team, having secured promotion to the football league after fifteen years away when the team were presented with the trophy and, you know, you had uh, you had Toza and uh, I think it was Mullen come forward in front of the team to actually lift the trophy, all go mad, champagne, champions, the whole thing like you normally see. And if you saw a wide shot of that, 
you would have seen McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds standing away from the team, standing there applauding them, not doing the normal, let's get the owners in there. This is, oh, we want to be on the front. But no, they let this was the team's moment. They stood back, Roger. And that, to me, was not only the epitome of class, but that tells you where their hearts are, what this is about, and the fact that this may well have been, you as we really discussed it. A, a romantic. You really are. Roger, one. I'm telling you. No, and you are. They you put are, out you 30 are. tweets between them since then about how emotional they are. It Absolutely. wasn't a one off moment. But, but look at the moment, Roger. Look at the moment. Look at them in the moment, right? When you can be cynical and think this is a great marketing opportunity, let's be in there with the players lifting the trophy, or in your heart, you stand back quite naturally applauding them and you let the team lift the trophy. You are way too big a cynic. And I say that as one of the greatest cynics I know. There are times when there is romance in sport, Rog, and you just have to acknowledge it. And I, I don't for a minute think that when they put two million into Wrexham a couple of years ago, they thought this was going to happen. I'm sure that there was a degree of cynicism in it, thinking this is a great opportunity for us to turn a profit, build a documentary, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what has happened since then has caught them by surprise. And it's genuine. I think they have a genuine love for that team in that town that while it may not, you know, the, 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 the the first blush of true love may fall off at some point. Right now, this is genuine on both sides, and it's just wonderful to watch. Well, and if you compare that as we did with the with the World Cup in December, with that funny sort of yes, see through the see through, the see through kimono, <laughs> I've actually bought a couple of those for different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> They've worked for free, but anyway. Oh dear God! Oh dear I've, God. Got, I've got some me- I've got I've got, I've got, I've got some me- I've got some messy complex. What are can you, I are say? You, you've probably got a messy bathroom as well. But are you are you are you sticking are you sticking to your story about how you got your hamstring straining? <laughs> yes, for the moment. For the moment. Uh, very. Yeah, good. no, it's, that- a, it's, a, it's a great story, Grant. It is a great story. Um, and I'm not saying that, that that's not the case. They, they they have fallen in love there. I just think, you know, like, they, they know what they're doing. This isn't a one moment that they, they, they've, they've covered social media since then with their little moments of getting out of their body, as Michael Haney was talking about. Great. I'm, I'm pleased for them. I told you this would happen. Um, and it, it works, you know, what's the challenges now? You know, there have been a, a few of these kind of stories over the years, maybe not with Hollywood stars, but I'm talking about taking bust clubs. I'm thinking of Napoli, I'm thinking of Fiorentina, Parma here as well. And you start, even Glasgow Rangers, when they were liquidated, you start in low divisions and you the get all... Yeah, the old one. It's a new, it's a new one. Yeah. Uh, no, no, you're right. You're right. I just didn't want to labour that. When they liquidated and they started the new co, wasn't administration. They were liquidated. Their assets were dispersed to the winds for carpetbaggers to pick up. Uh, so what I'm saying is, when you get these little stories, oh, we're starting it ground up. Uh, it's great because fans love nothing more than momentum that's going forward, even if it's at the really low level. So so they've got this massive momentum now, as did Napoli, as did Fiorentina. There comes a point when you plateau, when you plateau, and then sure. you, you start going down. And then I believe that all those lovely Wrexham fans will be shouting for people's heads, will be shouting things like, You've just been on the TV. I was watching you at Wrexham throw another five million in. 
Um, that's still to come. Uh, so I'm very happy for them. Enjoy their moment. Enjoy the, the fact. But, you know, I know how this film ends. I've seen too many club owners, fans love you and want to hang out with you as long as your credit card is behind the the bar. As soon as it's not, they're going to kick you out in the streets. It's the story of football, Grant. Still has and, to be know, the best... Has still has to be the best football song of all time, though the McElhenney song um, with all of the fans <laughs> as a piece of content that you shared. That Rog has yeah, I to love be that. I love has that. to be the greatest piece of content I've ever seen. I have watched that more times than I can possibly explain. More than the well, gentlemen, we have a <laughs> <laughs> we have a guest joining us. I'm delighted to say a returning guest, a friend of the show, Eddie Pepperell, the fine golfer and even finer young man is joining us to talk about um, about the current state of golf, having seen the live event in Adelaide at, uh, last weekend and seen a lot of the social media uh, to and fro around it. We thought this was the perfect uh, opportunity to bring back um, the man I will call the thinking man's golfer. Uh, so, gents, why don't, we, uh, why don't we welcome Eddie to the show? Well, hi, Eddie. Welcome back, mate. Good to be back. Good to be back, everyone. Welcome, Eddie. It's, it's a difficult game, golf. Isn't it? You know, I actually got in uh, six holes this morning and um, it's a very, very difficult game. <laughs> now, Roger, you're taking this whole new format thing to a whole new level. Six holes. <laughs> well, I didn't have time for any more. And there was a, a couple in front of me, you know, the old codgers. And, you know, I don't have the patience for that. It's like Patrick Cantley. That's not going to work for me. I hate I to say it, Rog, but you know what the people behind you were saying. I've been in a bit of a dither because, Rog, it must be to do with his golf. He told us that his biorhythms were low or something, and I've been in a real flap of to know what that actually means. But are they okay now, Rog? Yeah, I mean, like, the thing is, right, you know, I'm getting on a bit now. So, you know, as a younger man, I had this really ridiculous swing, all this slashing at the ball, stiff wrists, a bit like Bryson, if you if you want to put a vision on that, right? And, yeah, I, right. and the, back ju- <laughs> the, 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 back, the back just won't handle that anymore. So in, in recent years, I've tried to get this whole, you know, hand release thing going where, you know, like you time the way that you go. Th- and that is bloody hard. I got to tell you, you know, like you hit one good one, then then you leave one straight right, and then the next one is a duck hook. It's really hard. If only we had someone on the podcast who knew a little bit about golf, Rog. <laughs> <laughs> well, I concur, Rog. It is hard. I mean, my Twitter. I, I hate I hate the for you element of Twitter for many reasons, but today it threw up probably the worst thing it's thrown up for three months, and it was a little short video of John Rahm's impact position, and um, oh, I just was. Half depressed and half in awe looking at that. But, that, but isn't that a beauty, Ed, that, that someone like you who plays at the very top of the game can look at guys like that and still see, you know, like we marvel at everybody that hits a golf ball for a living. But there's that rarefied air when you get guys like Ram, and as we saw recently in the Masters, some of the golf there, it's just, it's just an extraordinary thing to see. Yeah, it really is. And he's somebody that just obviously moves the club quite uniquely, but you break it down and you look at all the important points and aspects of his golf swing, particularly, you know, into delivery and just after impact. And it is just, it, it could be Ben Hogan. It could be Sam Snead. It could be Tiger Woods. It's, it's that good. You know, it's top 10 ever really in terms of stability club face and doing all the right things. So he's, yeah, he's a marvel. I absolutely love watching him play golf and, you know, you break it down technically and, and it works. We can see why it works, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. The Masters gave us everything we could ever want from the Masters. 
does, right? It, it seems to deliver every year. And of course, one of the big things this year was the added spice of the of the, the PGA Tour versus Live narrative. I'm going to call it a narrative rather than a war because I think it's much more of a narrative than a war. But again, you know, everybody, I think, watching it mentally picked sides. I know I did. You know, I was, as much as I applauded what Phil Mickelson did in the last round, I think it was an extraordinary round of golf. I was desperately wishing John Rahm held on to win. I, I didn't want Brooks Kepka to win. Again, you know, the first two rounds he was playing out of his skin. But that kind of divide in in the golfing world that we've spoken about so often it really came to the fore, I thought, during Masters Week. What, what, did, what did you make of it all, Ed, as you watched it all un, uh, unfold? I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great to see Brooks back playing the way totally he was playing in 2017, 2018, 2019. And, and I was most curious as to what happened on Sunday because there was part of me that thought – you know, these guys don't know how good John Rahm is, but there was also part of me that thought John Rahm doesn't know how good Brooks is when he's leading a major championship. And we hadn't seen that for a few years. And it's easy to forget, isn't it, just how good Brooks was at closing out majors. He was probably in, in the Tiger echelon uh, as good as he was. So I was so curious to see how it all unfolded. And obviously, I think Brooks's game just fell away a little bit and he, he just couldn't compete with John. And, and that goes to show just how super, Superior and imperious John is playing at the moment with his game. I think um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I thought there was, you know, so many storylines and um, the, you know, Augusta at the Masters is always, uh, is just always a brilliant major and never, never disappoints, does it? No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And this one I thought was, as you say, particularly, there, there was so much, you know, the press were desperately trying to make this all about the Live versus PGA Tour. At the end of the day, it came down to the protagonist on, on the course. But, Again, you know, this narrative won't go away. And on the first day of the Masters, we saw the um, the ruling come out in the in the case between the players and the DPWT. We saw that, you know, obviously, Patrick Reed had to come out with some kind of conspiracy theory because that's what Patrick Reed does about that it was deliberately announced on the opening of the Masters. But um, when that announcement was made, Eddie, what was the general feeling amongst the players on the tour. I mean, I'm sure you've spoken to to some of them, and 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 if you haven't, what was your feeling about the ruling? I uh, I think across the board, it was a little bit of a surprise. I think there was a sort of um, perception out there, or feeling anyway, that the, the players were probably going to win this case. Um, what I would say is that the tour did a very good job of ensuring that the case itself was quite specific in what it was about, right and. And that was ultimately just its ability to enforce its own rules and sanctions. And I think, um, as is the case or has, has been the case with lots of this stuff with Live Golf over the last 12 months, you know, narratives have been put out there. And then people's perceptions have really been led astray, I think, because of the narrative. And so the sort of reality of the situation has become um, quite opaque. And, and I think when you broke it down in the tour's terms, it was actually quite clear as to, as to the case they were making. And obviously they won on that. Um, but generally speaking, I think there was some surprise and certainly haven't spoken to a player who was involved, uh, on the live side, he was surprised and it was entirely unexpected. I think they had all been told on the live side that they were definitely going to win this case. There was nothing to worry about. And the fact that the tour really won it kind of unanimously and, and the verdict was almost, uh, back of the net for the tour. It was, I think has taken a lot of those guys by surprise and they probably weren't expecting it. So, um, it'll be interesting to see what comes of it. To be honest, I, I'm. I am curious to know what the tour are planning on doing in the in the following kind of weeks and months. But uh, yeah, I think a little bit of surprise. And, you know, I suppose depending on your perspective, I always think in terms of the balance of power, it's not a bad thing what's happened. Uh, it's certainly 
shifted or ensured that that there is some power still to be had here on, on the part of the DP World Tour and and the ramifications because of that for other sporting bodies in the in the country, I think is fairly significant. Eddie, I was um, lucky enough to come out to the Dubai Desert Classic this year. I haven't been poking my nose in in the player rooms for uh, of, of t- golf tournaments for a little while in the way that I used to in, in in my old job, and I was perhaps really taken aback by the some some of the schisms that really had formed between. Um, some of the players, some players who were great mates are now no longer great mates. And it, it really shook me how personalised, in some cases, this had been. And I couldn't help reflect as someone who'd been involved in the game and trying to grow the game in, in other markets like China, which HSBC did for a very long time, as you know, that this is narrative, but it is also causing incalculable um damage to the game because there is only a golf fan and there are golf fans that like the traditional there are those who might like the blend and there may be some who just want to see the modern but do you not think that particularly with the ruling which puts the ball probably back into the sort of if you like the protagonists or the establishment's hands that you know the Ryder Cup is is more protected than it was etc don't you think or maybe it's happening behind the scenes that there needs to be a a big powwow now and that people need to come together and try and get this solved because whatever your views on live whatever your views even on Saudi Arabia which I'm not entirely sure is up to the golf world to make uh, geopolitical um, proclamations on anyway that actually for the good of this very venerable and hi- uh, historic sport that conversation rather than uh, almost anarchic um, narrative that we see on social media and particularly just can't be good for anybody. Yeah, well, I agree with that. Um, but I don't think that that is, that ball is all in the court of the DP World Tour. I mean, I think that there are um, factors obviously in play or at play with the guys who have gone across to live and specifically the contracts that they've signed that, you know, make make that element more difficult than it, would otherwise be, you know, the, the talk of independent contractors. Well, these guys have never been um, less independent than they are now um, because of the contracts they've signed. I hope I haven't got that wrong. I think that's a double negative. Um, you know, so there's some irony there. And, and I think, you know, that that was always the crux of one of the major problems as I've seen it all along, Giles, is, you know, as well as I do, that there are time constraints on individuals in the game of golf simply because each you know, Rory McIlroy has 20 weeks, let's say, at his disposal a year. And if he signs a contract to play live golf for, say, 12, um, plus the majors, four events, that doesn't leave very much. Um, that's certainly not going to satisfy the commercial needs of any of the other tours, right? And, and that doesn't take a genius to work that out. Now, bearing in mind that Lee, that Lee and Ian and Sergio and all of these guys have signed contracts that probably look something like that, I think it makes it very difficult um, for a a solution to be had that ultimately suits the needs of everyone. Right. And, and just the contracts that have been signed are ultimately on those individuals, uh, not on Keith Pelly, not on Jay Monaghan, not on Rory or me or whoever. Um, so that's the starting point now. And I think that that makes things difficult. And I think the tour have historically bent over backwards to enable, to be fair to Ian and Lee Rory as well, guys to just play four times on the DP world tour to keep their status. But, um, it's it's very difficult, and the starting position now is fundamentally altered, and, and that's due to the contracts. I, I would argue largely due to the contracts that have been signed. And I don't know if that answers your question, but I would certainly love there to be 
a solution. And I think some of the initial fallout, you know, is sad. I mean, me and Laurie certainly at the beginning had a difficult time and I took, I, I was, it was all quite raw and emotional for me when it first kicked off. If I'm being quite honest, I think as the dust has settled, I've certainly felt a lot less emotion about it. My viewpoints are largely the same, but I, I don't feel as emotional as I did a year ago. But, um, you know, it is a shame that relationships have broken down over this. Eddie, uh, I'd like to ask you exactly on that. You know, I think that's a very interesting point that you, you were surprised at the start. I, I want to ask how much and why this was a surprise, not just to yourself, and I can understand yourself, you're a very, very loyal person. Uh, I mean, in general, to the world of golf, um, I'm just talking about what I've always said, words like inevitable, words like, you know, this will happen, the market forces, which I know you understand fully, are such that they will ultimately rip apart an organisation that is in a lot of ways, set up to be not what the, the finance markets would want. Could this have been avoided? Could two years ago somebody have seen this coming and said, if we don't get our act together, this is where we'll be in 2023? I think probably. I mean, I certainly wasn't privy to any discussions. I, I wasn't, Liv was not on my radar, I can assure you, um, until really it kicked off. And it, could it have been on my radar sooner? Absolutely. But you know, I wasn't frankly that interested. I'm generally not that interested in golf, believe it or not. I, you know, as you've mentioned, I prefer to read about other things. But um, that being said, for sure, I mean, you know, if we go back, my understanding, and I've got no reason to believe Keith has lied to me when he's told me this, but, <clears throat> you know, Keith told me that one of his offerings to live was that they take um, sort of effectively two to three months in the autumn and look to get a foothold in the game of professional golf via six events that would, you know, bear in mind that that would actually harm the European tour, given that so many of our strong events do tend to sit in actually in the autumn. I mean, that is, that is playing around the PGA tour. We'll leave the PGA tour aside for the moment because I do agree with the, I do think that they've been quite hard headed with all of this. Whereas I don't think Keith has, I think Keith was quite open early doors and was looking to involve them. So the ball was in their court a little bit with this stuff. and and you know, they decided that that wasn't what they were after and they wanted to go a bit bigger and a bit faster. And I think as soon as that was decided upon, then we get to this point that I just talked about a minute ago where the commitments now on the top players are eight eight events last year, 14 events this year. And that just can't work. That's unworkable in the golfing ecosystem as we have it. And, and I think it's really important that people, certainly the wider public, understand that this is not like cricket where you know, the time requirements of an individual to play a 2020 or a one-day international is one or two days. The time requirement for any golfer, whether they're playing on the Live Tour, DP World or the PGA Tour, it's, it's a one-week It's a one week commitment. And, you know, we have a finite amount of weeks in us as golfers, certainly the top boys do. So I think as soon as that was Brit, you know, that once we'd gone past that, it was very difficult for it to work. And um that's how I see it, Roger. I, I, to, you know, to your point about it being inevitable and market forces, I've had an, a hard time and I find it unsettling that we should just roll over and allow a public investment fund, effectively a sovereign wealth fund of a super wealthy, oil-rich nation to just come in and effectively look to buy up a sport. You know, there, I don't know that there's any governance that can control that and I don't know that there should be, but that, I don't like that. You know, it is different than just going and buying Newcastle United. I mean, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, there are regulations 
within the Premier League that stop them now buying another team. So, you know, there are things in place to stop this kind of thing occurring in other sports. And I, and I just think that in golf, the, and I would say this, by the way, whether this was an American fund or a Norwegian fund or whoever it was, the idea that, that the whole of professional golf should be uh, condensed under one umbrella, certainly in the get-go, I, I just don't, it doesn't sit well with me. Um, so, you know, the political aspect, the moral aspect, I've not jumped on. I've not made a scene of at all because ultimately I went there in 2009 and played a tournament. And yeah, I agree with everything you've said in the past about making those judgments. You know, it's you could it's so it'd be so easy to be seen as a hypocrite. And uh, you, for that reason, I've just avoided making that. Although I understand it, I, I, I don't make it myself. But for me, it is honestly one of the main concerns originally was it was just the, the concentration of where the income was coming from the abundance of it i thought that it, it was sitting above market forces because i don't know that this is a market force when you've got a sovereign wealth fund willing to chuck away three or four billion dollars frankly overpaying 10 times for a lot of golfers i mean that isn't if that's the market we're in then fine that's the world we're in i mean that is the world we're in we have to accept it but i i don't it doesn't sit very well with me. Yeah, you're right, Eddie. I think that's I think that's a very clear answer. But you know, I said on on one of our podcasts that that everything I look at in the world today, and I'm like you, I think a lot about the world. You know, it comes down to three headings: one is money, one is demographics, and one is geopolitics. Uh, let's take the last one first. I don't think people have grasped that Saudi and let's just say the Gulf in general, they are not playing at this. They are looking at our sector as a way to diversify away from what they've got. They aren't price sensitive. So it's not the money side for them. It's the geopolitical side. And they're going to do the same in cricket. I would argue, Eddie, in football, they have done the same. You know, if you look at what Qatar has done with, you know, PSG and being in charge of the, the club uh, situation, and basically they have they have taken over UEFA. People won't say that, but they have. It's not just golf. I think sport needs to get its head around that. And, 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 and I don't think that the Saudi argument is the good one. I think the better one is the money one, which, as you say, w- one of the arguments that, that, that Grant and to a lesser extent Giles, and I, I know yourself, like to use is, you know, this can all be about money. But at the end of the day, Something only exists if the money still flows into it. And, you know, there's two or three ways that money gets into sport. One is the media sector. And we can come on and talk about what they want now. That's why I use the word inevitable, because they want (laughs) the box office. The other thing is about governance, that when you say one controlling body, if you look at a lot of the difficulties in sport just now, it's because there's multiple governing bodies, whether that is football, whether it's rugby, which is the poster child of this nonsense. Golf is now living it and we're about to see it in cricket. Whilst I know that all of this is very painful for anybody that's a reasonable man or woman, it is inevitable. I've been a bit disappointed, Eddie, especially with Jay. Keith, he probably should have seen more of this coming. USA tried to head it off and he tried to compromise. That's great. That's great. When he was on this show, I thought he came across really, really well. But honestly, I just think there's too much complacency around in a world that is governed by money, demographics and geopolitics. Well, I think 
I find it interesting. I mean, I'm trying to kind of use, uh, imagine other industry sectors, because in my mind, the use of the word inevitability and that there are too many governing bodies suggests that the way that something inevitably tends towards is a centralized system of governance, which is true in many cases. But that's exactly why there are regulations and governance in place to ensure that the risks that come along with that obviously are not fully um, exposed because we know through history when it, and it doesn't have to happen in, in a golf, in the sport like golf, it can happen in other sectors and industries that, you know, when that happens, um, things can fall down rather dramatically. And I think what I, what, what I wonder is if this could have been Japan 30 years ago, this could have been China 15 years ago, this could have been Russia 10 years ago. It's just that it's Saudi Arabia now. And so in my mind, what, what I take from that is, well, if I'm in charge of governance, I have to recognize that the money flows over time change, and they change quite significantly. And so I don't want to be beholden as a sport, as an industry, to just one income stream, because that's effectively what we're being beholden to here. And that would be of major concern to me if I was in the role of governing uh, the sport, which there isn't one institution, obviously, as you say, that does govern, but there is the RNA, the USGA, the PGA of America, the PGA Tour, the, the DP World Tour. And I think... I honestly think in my heart of hearts that all of those bodies that I just mentioned largely see what I've just mentioned, uh, talked about and do see the risks in that. And I think for that reason, they've kind of taken a relatively solidified stance together. And but, Because that's how I see it, Rog. Um, and you could be right and I could be wrong, but I think we need to set in some guardrails as to that possibility. Eddie, I'm interested to know, we had the, um, the Live Adelaide event on at the weekend and if ever there was a warning shot across the bow for the establishment of golf it was going to be australia australia has been pretty woefully neglected by the powers that be in golf has produced some of the great golfers in a sport mad country that let's be honest if you think back to packer if you think back to a big bash cricket they don't mind brash they don't mind giving it a go and having a carnival atmosphere australians are about sport played with a kind of uh, a macho way. And you can see how an Adelaide event with their best golfer having come to live was going to create a great theatre and a great pomp and ceremony with Greg Norman, who is a Marmite character, or I guess Vegemite characters for Australians. It was going to be a, a big razzmatazz, and it was. And I, I know that you got involved in a Twitter thing. I, th- I totally agree with you. I don't think... Um, raucous golf holes or anything new. I think that's been proven in Arizona in the years to come. But for the first time, the live spectacle, to me, looked a bit more interesting than it had been before. And I I say this, I have to be careful because um, obviously I have been involved in the world of golf. I felt one of Liv's big mistakes was I'm not sure they necessarily hired all the best tournament promoters who are out there in the world of golf who could, for a, a good check, have really put some events on to challenge PGA Tour events and DP World events. And Liv kind of took their time to warm up and golf fans, people like Grant, were saying, well, I gave it a go, but it wasn't that interesting. This one looked a bit more interesting in the pre-tournament hype. Does that concern you that they're beginning to get their act together? Or do you think it was Australians being Australians that, that kind of created the show? I think for the most part, this was the fact that it was in Australia. I think... Personally, I kind of think you could take Phil Mickelson, Cam Smith and Brooks Kepka to Australia. They could be playing on the Disney tour and you would get thousands of people show up and watch them play golf. And, and 
that is not meant to be critical of Liv. It's just the fact that they've been starved of seeing great, great golfers go down there. And I, and I agree with, dev, with everything you said in terms of that element to it. And now I don't know whether that is entirely the fault of the PGA Tour or whether there's some reciprocal element to it there. Because, you know, you do need a government or a sporting body within the government or sits alongside it to also want to have an event in your country or your region. And so there has to be an element of organic growth to um, anything. And I, and I wonder if part of the reason why Australia hasn't had more big events in the past is just simply because there hasn't been the the will on the government's part, but or you know certain other sectors within the country. I, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. I know the, the blame gets placed a lot on the PGA Tour and that, and there's going to be those who are far more informed than I am um, on it. So, yeah, I thought it was. To be honest with you, I, I liked the video of uh, Chase kept having a hole in one. I thought it was fantastic. Um, you know, I I like golf, and I think seeing that is a great scene. That could have been Scottsdale. It could have been Adelaide. Could have been wherever. I mean, that's entertainment, and that's fantastic. I've not. You know, uh, I did not enjoy it because I don't love this. I mean, entertainment. But, I'll come back to that one, Eddie. But um, do I think do I think it's going to change their fortunes? I don't know. I mean, I know they're calling for more events down in Australia. Great, but ultimately, you've got I think eight of the fourteen this year in America. So it's it's already you can see when over fifty percent of the events that is supposedly there to be a global tour is already in condensed in one country. You kind of have to wonder what's the pulling force there, and it's a bit like. I suppose people in Spain would love La Liga to be the best league in the world, but the Premier League's the best league in the world. And, you know, the why is, I suppose, in the interesting part, but it might just be that that's because there is the, the kind of domestic commercial pull, or the domestic pull. And I think America, largely speaking, carries that with golf. You know, Ed, um, I, I watched bits and pieces of the Adelaide event. I'm back in in the US time zone, so it wasn't easy to watch anything, which which is an interesting. I'd love to know what the viewership figures were like. and And, you know... As I watched it, it was good to see a crowd there. Like you, I thought the Kepco Holden one was great. And, you know, again, it was nothing we haven't seen in, in Phoenix, but it was great. Uh, really enjoyable moment. But I watched that, the clips I saw, and, you know, I, I, I was waiting for Roger to chime in and, and say that's entertainment because I know that's exactly where he's going to take that. But the thing that's curious for me as I watched it, it felt like exactly that. It's just, there's nothing real about it. It's glitz, it's glamour, it's pizzazz. It's showy and it is very much a product of the period that we've just been through, the period where everything was about glamour and gloss and glitz and influencers and all this kind of flashy stuff on social media. But again, you know, those trends come and go. I, I may be wrong. Again, Roger and I have talked about this at length on several podcasts about the times we're going into now where that stuff isn't necessarily going to be what floats people's boat. And I think the, the, the point you made uh, earlier was was absolutely right about if you strap yourself to the mast of a single source of income, and you're right, the Japanese 30, 40 years ago, then the Chinese and the Russians, now the Saudis, we don't know where that money's going to be, whether it's gonna, still going to be there. We don't know if they're going to get the hump with this, whether these uh, requests in the US for them to turn open their books for the, for the Saudi investment fund, which will never happen, they will cut this thing loose before they do that. So I think there's a real state of of flux here. And to take the live tour from Adelaide to Singapore, that's going to be a very, very interesting shift in culture, in approach to sport, in approach to drinking in public events. I mean, there'll be plenty of expats in Singapore at Sentosa Golf Club, I guarantee you. But 
I promise you this, people throwing booze around, and that does not play well in Singapore at all. So it's going to be very interesting to see the contrast there. But let me shift the conversation a little bit, Ed, because one of the big things that has been talked about, I think, among a lot of the pros uh, on Twitter, you know, um, there's a lot of pros getting involved. This Westy's been all over this, and that is the changes that have happened since the kind of initial uh, lies in the sand were drawn with these designated events. And there was obviously an agreement made between the DP World Tour and the PGA Tour, which, when it was first announced, looked really, really smart in terms of encouraging people who perform well on the European Tour to get their cards. And those cards would get them into all the big events on the tour. You know, that subsequently changed. So the agreement and the alliance made between the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour the criticism, you know, Lee's been very vocal in this, is that the Deep World Tour is very much the kind of kid brother and has been pushed around by the PGA Tour and not really thought about when they try and on the fly counter various moves being made. What's your take on that alliance between the two, how it's been handled and where it might go from here? So I think there was there was a, two ways of seeing that initial 10 cards. I think um, it kind of formalised Deep World Tour being a bit of a feeder tour, which I think that anyone with any knowledge about the two tools would recognize has kind of been the case for 10 years anyway. It formalized it and it probably expanded it by a few players. Um, and I think that there could, there would have been a knock-on effect because of that that would have potentially incentivized very good up-and-coming international players, possibly American players as well, to come and play on the DP World Tour because it was the best pathway to get the best, um, to play the best tour in the world, which is the PGA Tour and the biggest events. Now, obviously, the other side of that argument was the ones that Leah et al. have been making, and I totally understand it, and I and I agree with it, where it's the commercial impact that has on the DP World Tour, whereby they're losing effectively their top talent every year. Um, so there were two ways of seeing it. I know Keith was choosing to see it in the former way, and, and many were seeing it in the latter that I just described there. I think the big concern I have now is that since the new changes that came in on the PGA Tour, that card, those 10 cards now don't guarantee you all the best PJ Tour events. And it kind of puts you in the same boat now as the Corn Ferry Tour cards and the top 25 playoffs. And so the incentive element that I just described has effectively gone, or it's certainly faded dramatically. And so ultimately, I think all that's left of that deal is that we just leave lose uh, our 10 best players every year. And I think that's a big problem. I think that's the, my biggest concern I would have if I was looking at the European tour, the DP World Tour commercially and trying to sell to its sponsors moving forward. Um, now, the, the issue there, I suppose, is that at board level, there is an alliance that wants to take place. These latest round of decisions, these latest decisions that have been made in America were made by top players. Now, I can understand why they're making those decisions, especially in response to Live, but that's ultimately the, I think, where there is a bit of an issue and that what the board, what the boards want, and what the business side of things want in terms of creating the alliance has been undermined to some degree by the players. Um, so there's a mismatch there, and and the lack of convergence on ideas is, has clearly impacted that particular policy. And uh, and I and I you know I don't know what Keith and the board and, and whatnot are saying, but I would be worried. Eddie, so it feels to me a little bit you you're right that the the dp world tour has had a a monumental body blow in terms of where it sits it was holding on a little bit as as the other tour now it's very much more of a feeder tour and the best players are going to the pga tour however it seems to me that the um the ruling about 
the Ryder Cup and the protection of the Ryder Cup. Presumably, there has never been a more important time for what was the European tour, the, the, the Europeans, let's call it that, to get and to um, fix their skirts and really, really focus on making Rome the, as successful perhaps as, as the French Ryder Cup was with a European win, to try and get that sense of pride back in the continent in terms of making heroes of the players, the Tommy Fleetwood kind of, kind of thing that we all remember and love. Do you think then that there is... I mean, it's interesting. I know you're about to go and play in Italy and, and see the course. Do you wish in some ways, I, mean, I don't want to be too controversial here, but do you wish it was almost anywhere else but Italy because this is such an important Ryder Cup for the sort of reimagination uh, of how the, the European golf world is viewed by the rest of the world? Really, my point is less about Italy. They need a really good Ryder Cup. They need to get good fans in. They need to get good players. They need the, the players, they need the razzmatazz to say a kind of muscle flexing because the Ryder Cup has always been for me as a non-golf person. I get the Open because it's an occasion. I get the Masters because it's an occasion. And I got the Ryder Cup because it kind of appealed more to a broader sports fan that didn't necessarily need to know the intricacies of golf. And it seems to me that if I were... If I were the the, the, the hygiens of, of of the DP World Tour, I'd be throwing everything I had at making the Ryder Cup as popular and successful. The wonderful social media that you've been part of and the European Tour, sorry, DP World Tour, have done such a brilliant job of, of really trying to create an event in September that... Um, just reignites the passion because I think the golf fan and certainly the sports fan has been left a little bit reeling, a little bit hearse, a little bit muddled. And it's the showcase events as we saw in Augusta that we hopefully will see at the Open. And I'm sure we could see at the Ryder Cup to make it an absolute banger technical marketing term. Yeah, I don't. I I think that'll all be there. I think Keith and the team will be working their asses off to make sure that's the case. I know that's certainly what they did with Paris and they achieved it. If that doesn't happen, then I, I don't know that that blame can be placed entirely on anyone at the tour necessarily. Um, I think that it will, mind you, I think that it will happen. It'll be a great Ryder Cup. I think ultimately, from our team's perspective, I don't think Liv has actually made much of a dent in it. I think, if I'm being honest, uh, you know, the only player that comes to mind that really was, probably could have pushed for a spot this year would have been Thomas Peters. Um, you could make the argument Sergio, he's still a great player. But really, I don't think Europe has been that harmed by Liv. I think in terms of the Ryder Cup, America, however, I think is a different story. Um, I think they have. And so, yeah, that, that element might undermine the, you know, the, the notion that we've got the 12 best Americans playing against the 12 best Europeans, which would be a shame. But by and large, I still think there is you know, plenty of quality on offer, both sides of the pond to go out, go at it in Italy and have a really good Ryder Cup. Um, we could kind of, you know, we could do with it being tight in an ideal world, and we, we don't want it to be a whitewash to America, certainly. But I, I think I think that's exactly it in a nutshell. Is is if if you think about what's made the Ryder Cups such a spectacle, go back to pre eighty three. It didn't even make the newspapers over here. The Ryder Cup. It, you know, you might have got on the on the Monday morning, you might have said, "Oh, the Americans have won the Ryder Cup again." You know, eighty three in Palm Beach Gardens, we came close. You know, Seve hit that unbelievable three wood out the bunker, which is just ridiculous. And then 85, we finally beat them. And since 85, what's made the Ryder Cup such an enormous event has been how close the contests have been. You know, we've, how many blowouts have we had since 1985? Last year's, and I think a big part of the last, not last year's, but the, the COVID Ryder Cup 
was the absence of European supporters there. I think you could see that how flat the team were without the ole, ole, ole and all the, the stuff that the crowds bring. But it is, it's been down to the quality of the golf and the quality of the competition. And, and I think Ed's point is absolutely right. If you get the top 12 players on the DP World Tour and the top 12 players on the US Tour, and there will be a few names in there on either side, and there will be a few that people won't know. If those games are tight, that's how you create superstars. It's the golf, right? And the the entertainment and the pizzazz has built up over the years. You go back and look at the highlights of the 85 Ryder Cup at the Belfry, there was no pizzazz, right? It was all about the golf and the Europeans finally winning that cup. And, you know, this always brings me back to the fact that you can pay all the money you like and you can put all the pizzazz that the, the Saudis have put into the live tour. You can make it as splashy as you want, but ultimately the competition has to mean something, right? And I watch those live events. It doesn't mean anything. You know, Taylor Gooch won, he shot two 62s in a row and then kind of limped home with a 73 and, and he won. And you could see in the media them trying to talk up the competition. He had a 10-stroke lead going into the final round right? and he won by three. And what did he win? I don't know. He won a check for a load of money. I, I know it was $5 million or $3 million or something ridiculous. But it didn't mean anything. Whereas I still think, Roger, and you and I have gone backwards and forwards on this so many times, and I'd love your view on this, Ed. Playing for a 100-year-old trophy with names on it of the greatest in the game, it means something. The Ryder Cup coming down to a single putt to win it means something. And no amount of money, I'm sorry, is going to change that. It's just not. I, I, I just don't see it. Ed, Rog, either of you, please feel free to jump in. Go on, Rog. I've spoken plenty. You get, you go and then uh, I'll... Well, oh, we know what he's um, doing the same as an old jock kid. No. <laughs> um, I wasn't... Uh, listen, um, I, I'm not deaf to that argument, Grant. I'm not. However... The, the way I look at all of this is what that term that Michael Spirito used, uh, product market fit. A lot of this conversation that we've had so far, I think to a lot of people will seem like the passengers on the Titanic arguing about who gets a lifeboat. Uh, it will seem like that when, if you look at the product golf, and this is where I can't get away from blaming the incumbents, and not just in golf, but in every sport. If you look at how complacent they've been, I'll give you, I'll give you one example, Grant. You know, um, the barstool and rigs guys that um, are very favourable to the incumbents, they are not live people they got behind golf in the last three or four years to such an extent that their characters are now in the computer game. The establishment of golf from the golf channel downwards looked down at their nose at those people in the way that they always do. And this is, I'm coming to your point here. They have clung on to this idea of your argument, well, you have to be playing for something. It needs to mean something. Otherwise, what sport is it? And you and I, it's four years we've been having this argument, Grant. My answer is, it's not sport. It's not sport because if it's only sport that doesn't have a product market fit, it is going to die and we'll go back to the stage where we were in the 70s where there was no money in sport. Sport came and got rich through the media, not the fans at Wrexham, not the people that go and watch the British Masters, through the media. And the media has changed. The social media has definitely changed. And when you get a social media phenomenon, like an overtime, 
uh, who's disrupting, who we know they're disrupting, or you get Barstool and Riggs disrupting golf, they just look down their nose at them. And you can be right in your argument, Grant, and like win the, the, the debate, but ultimately just follow the money and the media sector does not want what you're selling, Grant. Well, I think that's very interesting and I kind of agree. Um, I think it seems we are entering a kind of secular change in that and golf obviously isn't on its own in that. Um, there are many, many sports and I've, I've, you know, you would be able to put it better than me, Rog, but I've thought for a while now that golf benefited from the television boom like every sport did and that boom has ended and yep. it is ending for sure and we have to find a way of moving ahead the problem is is the how and yes i don't know that question i neither um, do i neither well, do but i i've got I, i've got a, i've got a perspective on it because you mentioned singapore grants and i i agree with you i uh, uh was involved in setting up a women's lpga, LPGA tour in in Singapore for HSBC, which is still going strong. In fact, it is the main one of the main sporting events in Singapore. It's taken 12 years to build up, but you had players like Michelle Wee, um, Atta Pomp and Paula Creamer, who once, I think, sunk an 87-foot putt, which was quite special. But it's built into the context of the city. But there are other sports, uh, sevens, uh, rugby sevens, which I, again, was very involved with. Both came to the Olympics at the same time. And there are some events like the Dubai sevens, the Hong Kong sevens, which reign supreme in their cities. They are occasions that the people come to. They mark their cards, which is not so different from the Six Nations over in, in Europe, is not so different from American sports. There are marquee events. And it seems to me, and this is, if I were doing live, I would be trying to find as many Adelaides as possible. And if I were... Um, pushing back as the European Tour, DP World Tour, I'd be thinking about what are the events like the Dubai Desert Classic, like the Abu Dhabi Championship, um, like obviously the BMW Championship at Wentworth. What are our events that we can really, really build on the flag waving that we already know we have? Because I, and I say this as a sponsor, as someone who's now working back in sponsorship, but obviously have a lot of experience working for an absolute international giant in HSBC is so what sponsors are looking for. It's partly media and Roger's hypothesis about how sport got rich is bang on. It was about media money. The reason sponsors got interested was partly media, but it was also for the big international firms about geopolitical muscle flexing to say, we are in city X and we are big and we're part of it and we're hitting a demographic that is valuable to us. And I think that the real battleground now and, and, and what's intriguing about the golf debate for me is that the four majors, which are clearly the big guns of the sport, they sit outside the tours and they are what they are and they will be protected. And in fact, they probably weirdly benefited from this, from this narrative and, and this split for the moment. But the best events or the, the tours that are going to win are the ones that can put their best events and remind the fan, the humble fan, that these events are worth going to and that there is um, entertainment, that there is great competition and there is great happening. And I agree with Grant. If I were to go from Adelaide and go from the noisy Australian to Singapore, and I know, you know, the Singapore Rugby Sevens after the Hong Kong Sevens, where you've got 35,000 people in Hong Kong largely dressed up as dictators of various city-states and being fairly politically incorrect. And the next week, it's like tumbleweed. 
that could be the danger because Singaporeans aren't naturally going to be, as you say, chucking, chucking beards around. So for me, this one hasn't played out yet. But if I were playing on the part of the establishment, I'd be saying secure the big events and really build around them. You know, Dubai Sevens is, sorry, Dubai, Dubai Desert Classic, which Eddie, you've played in many times, is 34 years old. It's a proper event. It's been going for a good long time. And those are the ones to build on. But it, it's fascinating as not being involved in the sport, but obviously the sport's now interested in in good demographic companies, you know, people who've got a nice uh, business community. And at the moment, you would stand back and go, well, I'll just see where, where this sport's going to go first. Yeah, so to, to follow on from that, I think what's going to happen next year is that um, I think you'll see next year the DP will talk, prioritise, let's say, eight events, and they will try to publicise them as being this is what basically represents the DP World Tour now. Obviously, you're going to have the designated events on the PGA Tour and they're largely doing the same thing. So I think the fracturing that's occurred has forced every single entity within all of that to effectively do what you've just described, I think. The unfortunate thing is that none of those three entities can come together so that all of those events fit into one. Having said that, I use the word unfortunate, you know, that was the prime reason why I was ultimately against Live, in that it condenses it down from, you know, from two tours with 400 golfers a year to one tour with 48 golfers a year, taking basically the bag. And and that, that to me is too much of a shift. There needed to be, there needs to be a sort of middle ground. I've been open to the argument for, you know, certainly since Live that, yeah, there needs to be this, this kind of condensing of professional golf. There's too much of it. Um, but how we go about reducing it so that it's still effective is, is obviously the big question. I suspect market forces certainly are going to dictate that moving forward, especially as money and capital is a bit tighter um, in the coming years. But it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one, Giles, but I think that's going to happen next year on the, certainly the DP World Tour. They are going to prioritise events and they're going to have to sit them at the time of the year that works. Um, Eddie, let's come back a little bit to the paymaster, and if you exclude Saudi and you exclude big American funds, that's media. Sponsorship may have another role, and I've got a thought about that. All my thoughts are around segmentation. I can see sponsorships getting behind the old traditional golf for the reason Joel said. It's not so much about eyeballs and, and everything like that. It's more about uh, association and belonging and shared values and that kind of suits with golf tradition. So I, I think there may be a segmentation where a certain part of, let's say, not the very top end of golf becomes much more sponsor-led, whereas the top of golf will continue and ever more continue to be media-led. And that's where I just always ask myself, with everything to do with sport, Eddie, I say, is this a product they will buy? Is this a product they will buy? I fear... Eddie, I fear that, and this isn't just golf, I could say this could be the same for the fourth quarter in basketball, for the second half in football, for just going for the playoffs and for getting the reg regular season in baseball. You know where I'm going with this. They're going to get awful choosy. They're going to start cherry picking. And I think if golf doesn't radically change, you're going to get top media guys coming to golf and saying, I just want the back nine on a Sunday. I just want that. Remember, that's the way it used to be. Before, as you rightly say, Eddie, the media sector completely changed and went all in on live and covering everything. They picked the last four holes of the Open. You might not remember that, Eddie, but that's the way it was when we were kids. And I think it's going to go back to that. 
And I, I fear that golf with four and a half hour rounds, with 72 holes, with a lot of leaderboards that don't have recognized faces, does not have product market fit. Please tell me I'm wrong, but that's where I am today. I don't know that you're right or wrong. I'm sympathetic to what you say. Um, I feel that, you know, as a, as a consumer myself, and that's something that ultimately is the, the probably the most telling uh, remark I could make, you know, is that, yeah, I feel what you've described. Having said that, we all know on this call, you, you guys better than me, that things can last a lot longer than you otherwise think they should or indeed could last. However, I would probably add to what you've said that not only will they continue, it's, it's can they. You know, I suspect that the tightening of belts that's going to occur in the next two years is going to be yes. significant and there's yes. going to be fallout. And I do worry that if, you know, that there's, it's quite possible that the bottom 30% gets clipped off of almost every industry simply just because people are cutting back on costs. And if that means in professional golf, the DP World Tour take the brunt of that hit, then that's the hit we're going to have to take. And Keith's going to have to work around that as best he can. But yeah, I, I I don't know that you're right or wrong, Rog. I, I um, think it's a very interesting point of view, and it's a bit dystopian. But um, you know, I'm, I'm all for that. Well, this, this, <clears throat> if I can jump in, uh, a couple of things. First of all, you know, this idea about right and wrong. It's interesting, Rog. You, know, you bring up the Barstool guys being in the EA Sports game or whichever one of the, the golf console games they're in, which is a great point. But you know, the question is, will they be in the next one? Right, and this brings us to this idea that there's always a fad. There's always a thing that you I kind know of. That's your thing, Grant. Your that's your no, but, but, no, but I, 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 I'd be amazed if Riggs and the guys are in the next one, Roger. There'll be another influencer they might throw in as a bone, and this kind of ties in with the last part of this conversation you guys were having, and that's about the money and and about the fact that the, the, the trends come and go. Eddie's point about the paymasters they come and go, but ultimately. If the world has changed as significantly as you and I have been talking, Rog, particularly in the last few months in, in terms of the, the cost of capital and what that does to business models, there is a hybrid answer to all these questions we're kicking around, and that is that this, this idea that it's a God-given right of every sport to grow and grow and grow and grow and the money to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger changes. The belt tightening Eddie talks about happens, and people prioritize the places where they think they can get meaningful return for their sponsorship dollars. And maybe golf shrinks. Maybe Formula One shrinks. Maybe the Premier League shrinks. I, I don't know where those, those belt tiny exercises will take place. But ultimately, underneath all of this, you have to have a sport. And Rod, you and I had a conversation this week talking about the difference between a team sport and a, an individual sport where, you know, with the team sports you root for that team and the players come and go. But you know, we've seen this in Wrexham and Wrexham is the perfect example of this. You bring money, you bring Hollywood gloss and yes, they might fall on hard times and they might not get promoted next year and the whole narrative might change. And we know that there'll be Parkinson out chance at some point. That's just inevitable. But those fans will support Wrexham. Those fans had a whip round and got a hundred grand together in seven hours to save the club. Um, you know, a working a, a working man's town in in the middle of Wales. So it's possible this money goes away, Roger, and moves somewhere else. It moves to the next shiny thing, the next rigs and barstool, and you're left with a game. And that game, if it's going to continue, it has to resonate with fans and it has to mean something. And so, I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing if the sponsorship money 
doesn't dry up, but it it dwindles and it starts to be moving in different directions. And, and I think as well as different countries being the main paymasters, there's always a shiny new sport. How much how much golf sponsorship money or Formula One sponsorship money is going to move to pickleball or paddleball or whatever the the well, paddleball I think is the one that's the big one in America. Yeah, yeah, we don't know, yeah. but I guarantee you there are people looking at that because it's the next shiny thing. And this idea that you've got to pander to the audience that wants the shiny thing is at the crux of my argument with you over the years, is that underneath it, there is a core audience, there is a game that matters to people, whether they're playing it or watching it, and that is always going to enjoy it. It may be different in format, it may shrink at times, but underneath it all, if, if you look at the names on the Canadian Open Trophy, right, it's 100-something years old. Look at the economic times that that has been through. Look at the years when there were no sponsors. There wasn't any money. Look at the Masters when Bobby Jones went around to local businesses and begged them to buy 50 tickets at a dollar each to support his tournament. They go through that. And it, this idea that it's a one-way train that only gets bigger and only gets broader and only goes up is, I think, wrong. And I think the change comes about, and somewhere in that mix, you get back to a sport that has lasted for hundreds of years, grows and shrinks and grows and shrinks, and maybe we're about to go through a period of shrinkage, but it doesn't need to change the sport. Just to add to, to that, and I love everything you just said there, Grant, and that was one of the things that dismayed me a little bit about some of the recent changes with the PGA Tour in response to live by removing cuts and right. going from 140 guys to 70 guys. You know, you're you're removing the elements of golf, professional golf, that do generate the stories, that do generate the the genuine growth of the individual, the characters that we love, um, all to fend off a threat. You know, and, and I get that, but I, I agree with what you just said. And that was one thing that, that struck me when you were just talking there, that you know, it was one of the things that really frustrated me mostly about the recent changes that they made in America. And here's the thing, and, and this is, again, a, a, a frequent theme on this podcast, but it's kind of played out nicely now. There is a war into or an, a narrative, or whatever you want to call it, between a, a factionized sport, there's a schism. And what the establishment have in their power is the traditional golf fan. They have the fan of the sport that has grown up with it, typically. And certainly I know that the guys at Augusta, the marketing teams at Augusta, have done an extraordinary job with their mobile um, digital fan app that those who love golf know all about, which, if you're a golf fan, gives you a great experience of the Masters, far greater than probably any interactive media exposure in any sport anywhere in the world. But the real value of that isn't just to the golf fan, it's to Augusta, who know more about the golf audience than any other golf body on the planet. They know the fan directly. And that value to the sponsor and investment community is the gold. And I'm certain that the very bright people at Ponte Vedra, because there are many of them, and also at Wentworth at the DP World Tour, if they really want to crush and to take the um, ascendancy back, They've got a golf audience and they need to know it and they need to know how old it is and how young it is. And I can guarantee that the golf audience digitally is younger than the television audience, which is huge value because sponsors then don't think old person sport, but they think, oh, there's sport. It's linked into things like top golf, etc. That is where the new value of sports. So you mentioned pickleball, you mentioned parallel. These are all sports with colossal amount of, uh, of fan bases. The same would be true of matchroom sports with what they've got in snooker, pool, darts. If you aggregate that audience and own it and know it, 
you have got something to sell investors, you've got something to sell sponsors. And the media piece, which is the old money where sport got rich, it may take a reduction, but ultimately that's where new income will come from. And the more and more that rights holders talk a good game about their own fan, but actually do bugger all about it, they're going to leave money on the table. And that is the new trench warfare in the sports industry, as far as I'm concerned. Do you think Liv does enough, Giles, to, you know, get that, the way you're describing? I don't know. I know some of the people involved, of course. And I, 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 it's really interesting to me because I was intrigued by Liv because, as you know, um, creating a golf tournament in China for many, many years and maybe regarded as one of the, the probably top 10 golf tournaments by the end of it in the world because of the power of Tiger Woods and various people at that time. I knew a little bit about how to make a golf tournament in a place where golf really has bugger all interests. And, and that is the truth. When HSBC took the champions to Shanghai in 2005, it was a media play because Tiger Woods was there and we grew it very quickly. But it was a circus. And I don't mean that in a belittling way, we had to create an event. We had to create a, a media storm that put golf somewhere in, in Shanghai and made a, made a fuss of it. This was the first event that I felt that Liv was getting much more right than wrong. I was more interested in Adelaide. And as I say, I think it's down to a lot of the Australian audience and their love of sport, etc. If you want to watch a good, good, good fan experience, go to any sporting event in Australia. They need to build off that. But at the same time, the power and opportunity, as I was saying earlier, that the PGA Tour have, and certainly DP World Tours, pick those events that you're saying and really, really ring them out and give them the full biff. Because the other events that are tiny and small, there's never going to be, unless a massive investor comes in from a sponsor that says, you know, Austria is the new frontier for our thing and we're going to make the Austrian Open big, it's just not going to happen. So I'm really intrigued. I felt Adelaide was a, as a moment, but actually I think it it plays into the hands a little bit of the of the established tours to say, right, we're going to really, really understand our fan base and we're going to really understand where and what they watch and those events and where the fans congregate most, where it's not going to be 30,000 a day, it's going to be 50,000 a day and it's going to be a real swell. That to me is, I think, where um, the new battle lines will, will, will be drawn. So... I'm I'm really interested spectator in this one, I have to say. It's not done yet, um, but the Ryder Cup for me is a critical, critical point. And I, I love the Ryder Cup. I always used to get invited as a as a, a, sponsor, a sponsor guest, was never involved, never had to do any work, fantastic hospitality. And it was the golf I used to like to watch as a non-golfer because I could get the, the kind of team sense of it. And I really hope that we can see a, a great Ryder Cup this year. Eddie, Grant mentioned this, and I mentioned it in the weekend in my article, you know, what comes first, the audience or the sport? And I think you mentioned it as well. I think this is the crux of everything. We heard the last podcast about overtime, which is absolutely the poster child of this. You get your audience and then you actually go and take on established rights holders with your own leaks. I still think that is underappreciated in the sports industry. If you believe in any way that that is correct, that you need to follow audience, this world follows audience, the media sector follows audience, golf has to change dramatically. There won't be enough doing this, you know, shuffling chairs on the Titanic. There will have to be some very hard conversations and and you've put a, a few of them on the table here because here's the real thing about sport. In the main, 
the people are non-for-profit organisations. They flow through to the players, uh, especially when there's not salary caps. If the incomes coming into golf reduce, then Grant as a fan can say, well, okay, uh, golf will just get smaller. That's not great news for, I would say, 60 or 70% of golf professionals. Right. I believe the people in charge of golf... The easy thing to do is just say what you've said, Grant, and say, look, whatever, I don't care. You know, like, I'll just have a few less members, a few less people in my union. That's not exactly what I was um, saying, Rog, but carry I on. Think I, but more or less, you know, like, that's how it ends up. You know, if you just want to say, which is fine, like, you know, let the, the player's remuneration be the shock absorber for the recession, that's what's going to happen. And, and it's going to be dramatic. It's going to be dramatic. I'm not just talking about golf here. I'm talking about rugby players. I'm talking about players that are in, in Division One and in the Championship in England, players in Serie A. I believe that the, if you're running a sport, you have got an obligation to try harder than that. And I think golf has got a real chance because I do believe that top golf is the modern era's 10-pin bowling uh, and will get uh, people the way that 10-pin bowling did. It's clearly got the bro culture. You saw that in Adelaide. You see that with Barstool. It's also got a little bit, you know, of massive upside. Grant, uh, Giles mentioned it a minute ago, with women. Now, you could take that in its purest form or you could take it in its slightly more tabloid form. I won't mention that just now. But uh, I do see an awful lot of videos out there that have got people with very short skirts on. What I'm saying is you need to start afresh. Just twiddling the knobs and complaining about live or wondering whether you're going to be a feeder tour for the big boys in America. I don't think that's radical enough. I think you really need to say no sacred cows. And that's why your frustration was about live, Eddie. My frustration is about all these governing bodies. They've got fat and complacent and they should have seen that this was going to be needed. Well, I mean, yeah, that's obviously a point of view that, you know, I probably don't entirely share, but um, hey, I mean, uh, it, it is what it is, I think. But I saw I yeah. saw the announcement that Liv, uh, Greg Norman was talking about conversations, which I imagine been going on for a while with the LPGA, though obviously the PGA Tour had an arrangement with the LPGA a little while ago, so I don't know the status of that. But certainly... We've talked about it on this podcast before. I never felt that the sport got the Olympics quite right. They had an opportunity to go to a whole new audience and yet they conformed and maybe they had to conform to sort of the the old sort of guard. But this is a sport that is gearing up for format changes and, and, and experimentation. And you made a point on social media, which I think was really good, um, Eddie, is that the DP World Tour have tried and have been trying to experiment. And I think that is important because to stay put, we, we always talk about cricket. We all do. The whole sports industry does because test match cricket still exciting. 2020 is what the new guard, maybe 50 overs becomes a casualty. I don't know. But we keep embracing the change. I think one of the problems that a lot of sports have, cricket's always been very innovatory. I, li- I listened to a fascinating documentary about the history of cricket. It's been changing for about 400 years. The fact they think it started on Hambledon in, uh, down in Hampshire is not probably true. It's been played as a field game literally in England for, for an awfully long time and maybe started in Holland. No one really knows, but it moves on. 
golf hasn't actually uh, equipment's moved on, the ball's moved on, and maybe it's facing the, its moment in it in its sort of 200, 300 year history where a bit of evolution is happening. But the fundamentals still the same: get the bloody ball in the hole. Something that I never managed to do. Um, Ed, just Giles mentioned there. You know, you, we, we all had a bit of fun in a big Twitter conversation that you got involved in yesterday, as only you can. But you know, you mentioned there are a few things that the tour have done to kind of shake things up the Heineken hold and the sixes and the beat the pro. When we talk about these big events and how they can maybe make them more meaningful next year, how do you go about doing that without becoming a copy of live? Because the things you've talked about there, I think are really great ideas that are golf related and not just, well, let's have a big DJ party and stick shots of that all over social media of people having a big party before the event. And then the whole, you know, with all the booze and everything on it. How do you shake these events up in a way that isn't just, well, let's just make it a big rave and that seems to work with everything else. So we'll do that. We'll get, we'll get Calvin Harris to come and, you know, we'll throw a lot of vodka sponsorship in the audience and have at it. How do you make a meaningful difference to these events that's in keeping with the game itself without just saying cookie cutter approach, make it a big party? Well, I think the majority of guys who or girls who go to, let's say Wentworth, PGA at one with, you know, let's say 80 to 90 percent are going there to watch the golf. Um, some might be going there because of the entertainment that's been put on afterwards. Some might be going there because they've been dragged along by their partner. Um, but by and large, most people are there to watch the golf and they're happy with the format. They know it's going to take five hours. They know they're going to watch a historic event and a historic golf course. And they're ultimately going to watch a lot of very good players as well. I mean, given that the crowds that were there last year through the gates, which I think were record numbers, it's kind of hard to make the argument to me that. Golf's doing a lot of things wrong. Golf's benefited massively in the last few years. Now the pandemic has probably played a part of that and, and you know, we can't, it's difficult to quantify exactly how much, but I, I push back a little bit against some of Roger's sentiments oh, there. Please do, please and use do. That. Yeah, and I would use that as just one example. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, golf is golf and cricket is cricket and football is football. There's no right or you know, there's no right for us to... For you just to like a sport, we can like whatever the hell we like. I mean, at the end of the day, and I think you don't want to stray too far away from your your sort of DNA as a sport. I really kind of would say that and and believe that. And I think there's always things you can do to tinker around the edges, to sharpen the edges, to make the experience as good as you possibly can um, each week. And I think by and large, the tour have done a pretty good job of that over the years. Certainly during my time on tour, I think. Many events have become a bit more clinical and cleaner. And I think of events in Holland and Denmark, for example, you get great atmosphere there. A lot of people show up for more than just the golf. And so it's a difficult one. Ultimately, the biggest problem we're going to have as a tour is getting the top players there often enough. That's our problem. I don't think our problem is changing the way in which the sport works. I think it's getting the top players there early, uh, often enough. And so uh, I, I think, Roger, you, you know, your points, they could well be valid. I just think there may be, they maybe are still quite a long way in the future and I think that there are certainly some more immediate problems that we face that need to probably be ironed out and addressed. Uh, so, yeah, I, I hope that Yeah, you know, like the, 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 this is the, the nub of an evolution, a real revolution. You know, the, 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 the idea of, you know, Grant, the phrase he used is, in keeping with the game, from everything that you and, and all three of you actually talk about is that, you feel in keeping with the game that there is still a product market fit at 72 holes with, as you've just admitted, Eddie, fields that don't have the best players. On that, I would fundamentally disagree with you. 
And I don't think that's, I think that's coming real quick. I think that, you know, yeah, you'll still get the family day out. Giles comes back to me this all the time. Oh, I took the kid. The people that go to the event, fine. There'll still be a product market fit for that. It's a nice day out. As a media product, remember, they pay for you. It's not the sponsors, it's the media. They pay for you. That's not going to wash for them. 72 holes of people that are not household names is not a product that's going to work, Eddie. That's my opinion. You know, I listen to what you're saying because I really respect how you think. But I think you and Grant and also Giles are too wedded to your love of the game. You're not cold enough. This is pure cold media product market fit. And I think no big name golf of 72 holes has had its day. Uh, Roger, I mean... Uh, at the risk of just repeating old arguments, I, I just disagree. I don't think the numbers are showing you that people are fed up with golf. I think these new things have come along, and yes, they've got big numbers too. But how much of that is down to the fact that people just happen to love playing golf and love watching golf and consuming golf? And if there's new ways to consume it, top golf, great. I just don't see the fact that that you know you're saying that with no name players. I mean, pre Seve you didn't have that many big names in Europe. You just didn't. You had the odd one or different two Different media there. market, Grant. Different uh, media I, I don't market. disagree, Rog, but the media market will will find someone to make a star of. The media market will find a narrative and find a story and find someone to get behind, and there will always be a story because you've got 400 guys trying to get their PGA Tour card. And as Eddie says, the qualifying school is probably the highest pressure golf you can see. And so there's always a story. You know, so... If, if we live in a world of narrative, you, you're never going to have to worry about that. You never have to worry about finding a story. So until I, just I see... I don't think you can tell that to a 21-year-old, Grant. You you live with the, your, the eyes of your generation. 21-year-old Maybe doesn't Roger. care. Maybe, just but doesn't I, I, care. I would say there's plenty of 21-year-olds going to sport events, right? There's plenty of 21-year-olds yeah, going... Yeah, but it depends what kind of sport event. I mean, like, you go to the one that looks like uh, Adelaide, they're right up for that. They're right, and they will watch it. They will watch 20 minutes maybe of clips like that. That's great. Uh, ask them to watch, and this is where live is wrong as well. If you know that their tournament isn't a success because of that clip, that clip was a success. It's just all content what works and what doesn't, you know. And and you know, I, I, I take all your points about live about why it's not going to work and why it's losing a lot of money because it's just not that attractive. You know, Roger, but, what Roger, I believe- but surely you, you run the risk of of you're attracting people for the party, which is great. Get them through the door, make a, make a few videos on social media, make it look like a great time. That's entertainment. Yeah, sure. But how many of them are actually going to play golf? How many of them just went along because it was a big piss up in Aussie and we haven't seen one of these before. There's a DJ plan. It'll be a right crack. We'll go to the thingy hole and we'll throw beer on the thing. Brilliant. And how many of them are going to go away and play golf? Uh, you know, at some point... If you keep focusing on being the next shiny thing, at some point you will be the last shiny thing. That's just the way. That's just the way of the world. And never has that been more true than the generation that everybody seems to be falling over themselves to try and get. They, as you said, their attention span is zero. 
they don't want to watch four hours of golf. They they, they don't even want to watch these clips. They'll they'll get the first through the first thirty seconds of it and afford it. I, I think if you continue to to try and please that generation, you will be very very successful for a very short period of time, and then you're then you're left with the same problem, except you've alienated your core audience. I would just say as well that that one you know Chase Kepka shot was one of a thousand that that, that week, and it was entertainment. And I think that's the acceptance that everyone has going to an event or sponsoring a tour or sponsoring anything, that it's the one in a thousand that is the reason why you sponsor the other 999 elements right. of it. You'll then, there's a compromise. There has to be a sacrifice and a compromise, surely, when it comes to any sort of, whether it be investment or time spent anywhere, that you recognize that the last nine holes of a golf tournament is part of, that's an eighth of the story. Um, and, the, and the previous, you know, seven eighths are, of fundamental value and importance to that particular sport. And, and to me, if, if we're moving away from that, fine, we're moving away from that. I think that would be a, a bad decision. And I think that ultimately we, we may well move away from that, but I wouldn't be surprised if the pendulum swung at some point back towards you know, that, that. That's for yeah. sure, Eddie. And, and, and the guys are telling me to close up here. But, you know, what I would say about this is that, like in the answer to so many things, I think it's about segmentation of the product. I don't have the answer, but I've got a pretty decent idea of what it's going to look like. You're going to have the four majors that will be pretty much as today with full media coverage, full sponsorship, the whole shebang. I believe you'll have loads of versions of what Grant calls shiny things that I think will ultimately find a way to involve people that are at driving ranges like Top Golf that they can feel as if they're actually playing at the same time as the professionals in some kind of glitzy way where the professionals are mic'd up and it's all a bit of a crack. That's a different product. I see that product a great deal, especially if women are involved. Uh, and then the remaining bit, which is always the role of a sports commissioner, fostering the game, right? That You mentioned that a little bit, fostering the game. That's where the sponsor comes in, in my view. That kind of like, not really media product, but deeply traditional, deeply pathway development is ideal for certain sponsors. It won't be super rich. It will still make decent money for players. It won't be super rich. And that will, I believe, work in relative obscurity in the media market. So those are the three segments I see for sport. And, you know, I just see uh, governing bodies that are trying to deal with the fan, the sport, the product. And that's why I give them a hard time because it's got to be more radical than that. Well, just, and I don't want to have the final word, but just to add on to that, I would say no one in golf has done that more than Keith Pelley. You know, and this goes back to my tweet to Blandy. Um, you know, we have tried all sorts at the tour. And in fact, if you look at even last week, you know, one of the G4D players played in an actual tournament. You know, Keith is trying all sorts of different initiatives and has done for many, many years. And yet we're still here talking. So he's tried all these new shiny things and I would be critical of them on the large, on, on the whole, not, well, not all of them, but you know, it, it's just a constant effort to rebrand a new shiny thing. And we're still having the discussion that that tour phase is an existential problem. That tells me new shiny things don't work. They don't sell. There has to be an underlying story call it what we want that is meaningful impactful that that persists through time and, and you know that to me is is what professional golf should be about and 
We just need to make sure we've got enough players, good players, top players playing as often as possible. Well, Ed, uh, I have to say, I, I think you should have the last word as our guest. That's the it's the hospitable thing to do. And so I think we should make that a last word because you agreed with me. And I think that's the perfect way to make this. <laughs> Listen, matey, as always... It, no it's, shit, it's, Sherlock. It's, 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 you'll have your pop at me next week. You know that, Mitchell. Uh, Ed, look... We're, uh, what we're going to need to do is we're going to need to have a four-ball match, Grant. Me and you are going to have to take these guys on. And, and whoever wins or loses, we can... Uh, well, I think that's side. not a difficult I, I like those question. sides. I like <laughs> yeah, those I was sides gonna very say, much. Hmm. Get, Rod, get Roger only plays six holes these days. Roger only plays <laughs> six holes these days. Yeah, but I do have a decent handicap, Eddie. So so if you get me on a good six holes, you're in trouble. I've got Grant forged for me my handicap, which is now official. Just just let's not forget that. <laughs> Italian uh, Federation. Stum, Rod, stum. Yeah. <laughs> Ed, listen. As always, mate, it's always a it's always a pleasure to to talk to you. You're you're such a, a, a thoughtful, uh, such a thoughtful guy. To say nothing of being a great golfer, we wish you well for the rest of the season. Sure and uh, hopefully, I will see you in the summer when I'm over in the UK. Yes, look forward to it. Cheers, guys. Thank, Thank you, Eddie, for your time. It's really nice. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Well, fellas, as expected, uh, you know, I, I I love talking to Eddie. He's such a thoughtful guy. He really understands not just the golf world, but the, the world beyond it and that's what makes him such a such a great guest you know he's he's considered he's open to new ideas but he has opinions I mean you don't get guests better than that well if I were Ponte Vedra I'd be taking him on as a consultant just to, yeah, to help uh, uh, to help shape the future not as a player but as a as a thinking player but also someone who understands the player's experience obviously but is a deep thinker of life and and to try and help them through this I suspect they won't. Um, Who's Pontevedra? Pontevedra is uh, Jacksonville, which is the, where That's the where headquarters, the, the swanky well. headquarters of the PGA Tour are. And genuinely, it's like going into a, it's like the Truman Show. You go into this sort of biosphere and it, the, the world exists um, in a sort of, this is golf and we know the world of golf. Basics Why does that not a, surprise me? Yeah, it's quite weird. I mean, I love it. I've been many, many times and it's um, to have meetings there and it, and the new headquarters are astonishing. But it's kind of, it's so um, within its bubble, it doesn't realise there is a broader world out there. And I just feel that so many of the problems that the sport has brought upon itself is that the sport has sat in bubbles rather than actually existing on the full planet. And that's been a part of the problem. The, th the thing I like about Eddie is just such a loyal person, you know. That's why, you know, I think he took it personally very sorely that the Live people left because it's just not in his mindset that, that you know, loyalty to the tour, loyalty to Keith Pelley. It would have been dead easy for him to just say nothing there. And, you know, I agree with you, Giles. I, I, I think that's a potential commissioner. Of, uh, they, used to, they used to call those things principles, Rog, back in the day. Remember those? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and, and you know, whilst, whilst I don't agree with you guys on the fundamental thing, I absolutely love who that guy is. I love his thought process. I love that he uh, thinks widely about, you know, my big macro stuff, money, uh, demographics and geopolitics. He's really up on all of that. And, you know... That that was a good show. I, I think um, he defended the European tour really, really well. I, I just don't agree, guys, with what you're saying. Maybe I'm just... I I just don't think the media is going to go for 72 holes anymore. And I'm surprised that I'm on my own on this. 
uh, with so many data points now. But since it's the three of you, then I'm probably wrong. Not necessarily, Rog, not necessarily. But you, you do realise the day that you don't disagree with us, we've got no podcast anymore. So so God bless you and long may your <laughs> your, chippy, your natural chippiness reign. Because I, for one, appreciate it every time you disagree with me. I mean, seriously, that's the beauty of this, right? It is to have people that you respect and disagree with is one of the best things you can have in your world. 100%. Because it's, it's so difficult to do that these days. It, it's so right. And debate and listening to points of view and respecting points of views is an art that's being lost by younger generations, I think. And it's something that needs to be restored to humanity very, very fast because it's such an important part of evolution is by listening and, and learning to agree and learn from others. There you Amen. Go, Charles. Amen. So, so well, Charles, Star- Charles Darwin, 1831. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Uh, <laughs> listen, that was, uh, as always, an enjoyable conversation. Fellas. Our thanks to our very special guest, Eddie Pepperell, and our thanks to you for listening. If you don't follow us already, it's very simple to put a stop to that little bit of shenanigans. You can find us on Twitter at Entertained R, that's the word A R E. You'll find me at T T M Y G H. And you can find me, Giles Morgan, at Giles Morgan 71 and myself at RPM Como as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, until next time. Cheers, boys. Bye.